Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I'm super excited to share this week's episode with you with Aminata Fauna, an astute author, speaker, multi-award and prize winner and also journalist. She's created probably one of my favorite documentaries on Africa and our knowledge as people um, on the BBC. She's an astute humanitarian, activist and a creative practitioner in academia. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Aminata and really getting lost and carried away in her world. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Kisao. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Thank you, Aminata, for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you for having me. You are a speaker, author, multi-award winner, including prizes, and I would say a feminist, and you also hold an OBE. That's correct. Did I miss anything out? (laughs) Well, former journalist, lawyer, monkey. (laughs) Yeah, Well, I I don't think you do much of that now. I did actually watch The Lost Libraries of Timbuktu when that came out. Ah, it's still going out. On BBC. And I remember remember it quite well because I just moved to the UK, like to to kind of settle here and and go to school. And it was refreshing to have on TV at the time because I remember in my first week, I got asked the question, do you live in huts and do you have a spear? And that show came out probably a few months after. And it was nice for me to have something to talk about at school and go, well, if you watch the show, you would, you would know, you would know that there's more to Africans than not, but I I digress. Well, it's funny. I'll tell you that, you know, we made that film in 2008 and it aired in 2009. So it's got, you know, a while back, it still goes out on BBC World. I still get messages saying, oh, I saw you the other day. Everyone says, oh, you look good. I haven't aged a bit. Which is is getting embarrassing now. But, you know, the reason it continues to go out and the BBC continue to air it is because it is tremendously popular. The year it went out, it was the most watched documentary on BBC World. It upends a lot of assumptions that, you know, people like you and I have grown up having to deal with. uh, And it upends them very elegantly. And it decenters a lot of you know, previously held assumptions by, you know, the, the, the people who've sort of controlled the narrative so far. Incredible. I, and I know I've jumped way ahead in time in terms of your experience and career, but I feel like that is a reflection, I guess, easily accessible for anyone listening to the show today who hasn't come across any of your novels before, but it's such a great lens at which you approach your heritage, especially, you know, the African part of your heritage, you do have a book that is, I guess, for me, felt like soul bearing. And um, 
I listened. So I, I'm not a great reader of books, but I'm a great listener of, of audiobooks. And I listened to that book. But we'll start from the beginning. So you were born in Scotland, raised in Sierra Leone. And other places, but yeah. Iran, Thailand, Zambia. You're the true definition of a third culture kid <laughs> who is African. <laughs> you have all you have all of it. In fact, we can throw in Asia too and the Middle East. But if you had to think of those early, earlier years of you sort of forming your identity, how much of you felt rooted? And I know you'll probably talk about your experience in Sierra Leone and, and your father, but in those early days, having had so much of other cultures influence who you are today, how much of that was I guess, at the fore in terms of your identity? I mean, you're asking a chicken to describe being a chicken. (laughs) (laughs) The short answer is I don't really know because I don't know how other people forge an identity. But I can tell you this, that, you know, I think that the way we think about ourselves probably has less to do with where we are, where we physically are. And I have said before, in a new collection of essays called The Window Seat, (laughs) which is the window seat of the aircraft. You know, one of the things I do is go to the Shetland Islands, where my Scottish family comes from, and, you know, discover our Viking heritage. And one of the things I write about is, you know, people talk about roots, but humans don't have roots, right? Humans have feet, and feet are made for walking. And so uh, I think that what defines us is less to do with the actual place we are than the stories that we grow up with. It is the stories that define you. You know, this is something that writers have always known. But I think it's also something that people have always known. You know, we tell children stories. You know, we narrate the histories of families and kings and, I don't know, you know, how mummy met daddy. You know, everything around us is narrated in story form. And we are the only living creature to do this that we know of. We're the only living creature to do this. And it's the stories that you carry with you. You see, I mean, you know, I did live in Iran and I learned certain things that have, you know, helped me see the world. And I lived in Thailand and I learned other things that helped me see the world. And I learned, you know, to adapt to different places. I, I don't feel uncomfortable when I travel like a lot of people. I find that I fit in very easily, even if I don't look like everybody else. I don't, unless somebody chooses to make me feel like that, I don't feel uncomfortable on my own. But you know, Thailand is not part of any kind of inner sense of myself, really, nor is Iran. But the stories that I grew up with, that my parents told me, that I read, these are the things that make you, you see. So, you know, when I think of who am I, I think of myself as essentially mainly British and mainly West African, with a lot of of spice and flavour thrown in from elsewhere. <laughs> but it's it's interesting that when you say you can fit in anywhere, sometimes people wonder, for most African diaspora, how are you able to continue to want more or, or see more for yourself and still turn up as authentically you? And And I wonder if that, I call it the superpower, comes from a sense of having a route somewhere, even though you might not be sure where all the, you know, veins of that route go. Sorry, you're saying that the superpower comes from having... Having all these experiences and realising how big the world is 
and not being not being limited to one identity. Well, you know, I mean, to be honest, Zizo, you've sort of got me on identity. Everybody does because I don't really know what people are talking about. Well, the first time I really came across this, somebody who thought the way I thought was when I read Obama's memoir of his father. And, you know, he just said, or it could have been the one that followed, but anyway, I was reading Obama's two memoirs. And at one point he said, people who don't have an off-the-peg, ready-made identity. And you could say that you and I don't have a ready-made, off-the-peg identity, but I would say that nobody does, right? Nobody does. What people mostly have done is try to package themselves in a way that pleases other members of a team who have similarly packaged themselves. And it's usually meant shaving off bits of your identity. Before we came on air, you know, we were talking about DNA tests and I got one for my husband. And my husband is a white man and he's an Englishman. And there would appear to be nothing unusual or complex about his identity. But there was a story in his family that had puzzled me and that I had sought to uncover. And it was the fact that there had been a Native American great-grandmother in Suffolk in England. And I thought that's unusual, but I thought it was even more extraordinary because I'd been told exactly the same story by another boyfriend of mine who also happened to be from Suffolk about a Native American great-grandmother. And I thought, that is the oddest thing. And so I was talking to a South African friend. Now, South Africans are very useful because they have, you know, been through this, through the fire on identity. And he said, Jewish blood, they're hiding Jewish blood. I mean, you know, not my husband's generation, who by this time have bought the story of the score. Well, I got him the DNA test, and it turned out it wasn't Jewish blood. It was Spanish blood. And if you think about the anti-Catholic feeling that was still very strong when, you know, when I worked at the BBC, we used to get a lot of hate mail <laughs> aimed at Catholics in ways that those of us, you know, who experience uh, prejudice differently are like, what, really? You know, so... Actually, what they were hiding was Catholicism. So people constantly rebrand their identities, shave off parts of it in order to fit into something. You know, it's people like you and me who actually it's less easy for because we're physically different. But also, you know, I don't know what your background was like, but I grew up with a generation of giants who went forth into the world exactly as who they were, unapologetically who they were. You know, I write a great deal about my, that generation and a great deal about my father. And I, I realised that that's what they were crafting for us. They wanted us to be the next generation of giants and that we would know the world and be unafraid of it. And, you know, not constantly try to meet people's expectations by saying, well, I'm this or I'm that. You know, it would sort of take me as I am <laughs> or leave me. <laughs> and, and to have the option to choose because they didn't really. They were the post-colonial generation that sort of had to carve out something but still had to toe the line in, in some respects. And I love how you've put it. And I, and I know I did lean on the identity a bit quite a lot, but I think you, you've expressed it beautifully and I, and I wanted that expression for myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, I teach young people and, you know, everyone is identity, identity, identity. And I did one day just turn around and say, does anyone actually know what it means? Does anyone know what it means? We'll use this word. And I asked people to give me a definition and absolutely nobody could do it. 
I think that identity gets bandied around and we don't realise that actually everybody's identity or we, or we don't stop to think that everybody has got an identity that overlays, that's multi-layered, that's multifaceted, you know, and, and that we're not alone. You know, we, we sort of, in some kind of narrative space, we have this idea that everyone's got a single identity and we're the only ones bouncing around with multiple identities, but everybody has a multiple identity. And I watch my son, you know, my son is coming on 11 and he is so comfortable in the multiplicity of his beings, you know, that he's he's a West African, that he's British, that he's, you know, he says, but I'm American too, but, you know, by <laughs> by adoption. You know, he's very, very comfortable with it all, as I've always been very comfortable. So I think we should all move on a bit from identity, to be honest. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. My next question is, why are words so important? Again, nice segue from, from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because actually, if we do have an identity, you know, if, if anyone, if there is a place identity comes from, uh, you know, it's narrative and it's stories. And uh, one of the things I was thinking about recently was why people do talk in terms of roots and the way in which we've narrated our connection to soil. And I think it's about justifying ownership to a place that you start to narrate stories, which and justifying that ownership might be innocent, right? It might be about trying to get your children to stay and farm the, the land that you've farmed forever or ever in memory, or it, it might be more insidious. It might be the fact that you took that land from somebody. I know I live in the United States now, and one of the things I'm working on is, you know, the American narrative. You know, that whole American narrative of the West, of the rugged individual, of you know, the empty landscape. And actually, that's about narrating stories in order to take possession of something that wasn't yours. And they're in fact English, you know, they forget that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the narrative so, just excludes the fact that they were actually English or they came from England and then exactly. they went there and then they pillaged. You know, and, 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 totally. And one of the extraordinary things I found here was I was called a colonial. And I said, hang on a minute. Sorry, who's the colonial? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and somebody said, well, you know, you, you colonials. And I said, what? Because you see me as English or British? What do you and think said, you are? I come off to colonial <laughs> cultures, Scottish and West Africa. And I said, you're the colonial. You're the colonialist. Right? You're the colonial. <laughs> and the other thing is uh, the whole idea of American exceptionalism. America is unique. And I said, no, you're not. You're a successful colonial settler state. That's what you are. And one doesn't have to go very far to see some other examples like, well, actually, Australia is quite far away. But, you know, <laughs> you know, there are plenty of examples of successful colonial settler states. But this is the narrative Americans have told themselves. And that's why words are so important. And we're always constructing and deconstructing those narratives, having to write against the master narrative, you know. So, and, you know, having to construct our own narratives and it's, it is a joy and a pleasure to do so, but it is certainly why stories are so important. 
And so speak, speaking about that, like, you know, you've written, what, 13 novels? 13? I wish I had. I've written um, five. I counted five, but if we include the translated versions. Oh, well, yes, it goes on forever. I've written, hang on a minute, let's go through. I've written a memoir, The Devil That Danced on the Water. Then I wrote The um, Ancestor Stones, The Memory of Love, The Hired Man and Happiness. That's four novels, a memoir, and then a, a book of essays, which is just out, called The Window Seat. I guess the, the memoir being, I guess, the one that, that has given you a lot of conversation around speaking, I guess, about grief and conflict. And I guess it's the one that, that actually brings up the identity question in your work. And without speaking, because I think, you know, there's so many videos and interviews of you speaking about that. But I, I guess I, I would love to talk more around trauma and the birth of who you've become as a result of that. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thinking about, sorry, it's an unexpected giggle and probably right out of place. But no, 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 no. Trauma is another of those words like identity, which we struggle with. And, and, and too easily used. But anyway, we can talk about that because I've thought about trauma a great deal and I get asked about trauma a great deal and I speak about trauma a great deal. I just make a separation between trauma and suffering. So I've certainly suffered, but I, I would dispute that I had been traumatised. I guess I, I use the word trauma because I, I would love to speak about the journey of grief because I think in your memoir, it, for me, what I took away from it, 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 it was taking us on your on your journey of grief and, and emerging from from the suffering? Well, I think grief never ends. You know, I mean, do I still grieve for my father who was killed when I was 11? Yes, well, I do. Every time I think about him. It's interesting now because I'm now in my mid-50s and some of my friends' parents, are, or many of my friends are losing their parents. And one or two people have said, oh my God, is this what it feels like? And I said, that's what it feels like. And then they've gone on to assume that they will feel, you know, that grief is a process that you overcome and then you stop grieving. And I said, no, you will always grieve. It becomes part of you and you grow used to it and you, you know, you'll stop crying in public. But, you know, you will always grieve. And I think, you know, there are so many narratives, Jose, that we just, you know, have to challenge. And one of them is this strange idea that grief comes to an end. And it, it might be, I think, you know, I wrote a book called Happiness, which is about how one comes out of these experiences. So, you know, if you look, you asked me about my books and The Devil That Dance on the Water, which is the one that kicked off all of this Basically, what has been a 20-year delve into conflict, into civil conflict, war, traumatised nations, suffering. So, you know, it really, I really went through it, you know, personally with the experience of Sierra Leone and my father. And then, you know, I, I revised it again in Ancestor Stones, where I looked at it through one family's experience and the experience of women. And then, and, and that was looking at the whole hundred years of that country. And then the memory of love really looked, took a deep look at trauma, PTSD specifically, and, you know, the, the, the prelude and aftermath to a war. And then 
The Hired Man, I set it in Croatia, which was a contemporaneous war to the Sierra Leonean War. And, you know, and through a work of fiction, I looked at the very many similarities and some of the differences between those two wars. And then I came to write Happiness, which is really about people emerging out of, you know, a long process of recovery. And I remember that I sent the book to Kazuo Ishiguro, who is, of course, a Nobel Prize winner, a Nobel laureate. And I sent it to him. And actually, it was quite funny because he had just been announced that he won the Nobel. And he... He sent me a note saying it, the book had managed to get to his door through the throng of press. And he opened it and he said, OK, it's called Happiness, but it, the cover doesn't speak of that. So <laughs> it's a very, it's not quite a melancholy scene, but it's very calm, you know, early morning walk in the snow with a, in the woods, blue, deep blue cover. And he said, you know, is there something I'm supposed to take from this? And, you know, the whole idea behind that book is, you know, you go through a process and it becomes part of you, but we mistake happiness for joy or glee even, you know? <laughs> And we think that that's something that we can retain again. And, you know, unless unless you, you know, you are in some way unbalanced, it's very unlikely that you're going to ever recover that kind of childhood joy and glee, except in moments. But you can recover a, an equilibrium. And, you know, these things become part of us and, it, and it's part of maturing. I guess without being a personal development guru there's a lot of that in your work there's a lot of questioning self and for growth in a positive way in your work which says but why can't we seek joy in sometimes very very simple things yes I think you have to go on living you know so the main character in happiness is a psychiatrist a trauma psychiatrist who spends a lot of time in the field working with deeply traumatized people and it was something that I had to think about all the time the war was going on in Sierra Leone I was in London and you know it felt so wrong to be going out drinking dancing you know having a good time while my family was suffering so badly and my nation was suffering so badly and I think a lot of us in the diaspora judging by the rush of people who went back in that closing stage of the war I went back in 2000 and the war ended in 2002 and you know I went back and there were just so many people from the diaspora who you know went back to help went back to find their families and went back to help and went back to rebuild Sierra Leone. And some were more successful than others, but the intention was there. And I think that, that Sierra Leone would have had such a difficult time recovering. And what, what was very fascinating about watching that effort take place is that when the Ebola outbreak came, we were poised because we'd done it before and we did it again. Even COVID, right? COVID turning yeah, up. You know, it was like... It was just, it was, Great to see. You know, I had set up a school, which I still help run, and some health and sanitation projects in my family's home village of Robonco. And we had already headed off to cholera outbreaks, using the school as an information center and giving out, you know, basic sanitation and, and using the small amounts of money just to buy buckets and chlorine and, you know, 
And we'd already built and sunk two wells in the village, so they had access to clean water. So when the Ebola epidemic came along, you know, as I said, we were poised. We were able to get the information out to people quickly. You know, we've got our administrator and and, and people who work with the, the trust that I run. You know, so we can mobilize people really quickly. They went out you know, hired a truck, came back with buckets and bleach and scrubbing brushes. And then when the epidemic got to within just a couple of miles of the village, somebody from the village telephoned me and we made the decision that the village needed to self-quarantine. That the only way they were going to get through this is if they self-quarantined, which you may know. It's difficult. Well, yeah, it's very difficult, but many villages did do it. I mean, some villages militarised. We neither had the resources nor the will to militarise. And I remember talking to my cousin and saying, you know, I mean, our greatest fear was that a sick relative would turn up because we knew that people would take them in. So they self-isolated and, you know, we were able to truck in, we had to, in fact, truck in three months worth of food for 700 people. Can you imagine? But we were able to do that because all our systems were ready and it was all systems go. So, you know, it has been an, an interesting journey you know, through a country's history, you know, as a writer and activist. I did miss that out. I have humanitarian, more than activist for you, but... Yes, humanitarian. Well, I don't know. I don't know where one begins and the other ends, really. I guess speaking about Sierra Leone, and I guess off air, we, we identified, or I shared with you that I, I do have Sierra Leonean DNA in me. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as a country, how resilient Sierra Leone has been for centuries. If we think of Sierra Leone as, I guess, how it became Freetown and the slave trade and their role in that and, and, and becoming a safe haven, actually, for a lot of former slaves. And I remember shortly after I, I did the, the, the DNA test, I sort of started to spend a lot of time just trying to understand more about the history. And I just wonder, especially when I read or when I listened to your work, it took me somewhere and, and it almost felt like it was painting a picture. And now to see the country 20 years later from when the Civil War ended, and we're now in the middle of a pandemic. And then there's this feeling of, but they'll be okay. How? I don't know. Because as a country, you guys are resilient. Well, we've certainly had the opportunity to learn. <laughs> I mean, you know what I think, you know, I mean, I think the, the book that you've, you know, best is The Devil That Darts on the Water, because it was my first book and I've learned so much since then, you know, about everything from identity, trauma, you know, resilience. And when I think about Sierra Leone's resilience, I'm actually just reviewing In the Company of Men by Veronique Tajot. You know, and if you go back over the history of that whole coast, they, they were caught between the sea on one side, so the slaving vessels of first Portugal and then Britain on one side, but then from the north, they were caught by the empires of the Songhai, Ghana, you know, the Malian empires. So that small group, that, that narrow belt of rainforest was haven for you know, little civilizations that were basically just trying to stay safe. And they were constantly having to fend off attacks from one place or the other. And I think that is why, if you know, if you spend any time in any of those countries, and you know, Tajo, who's Ivorian, writes about it too, the forest is a sacred place. 
And the reason the forest is a sacred place, you know, is because it's life-giving and it also gives protection. You know, it's where you can hide. And all the way through the war, the civil conflict, you know, where everybody hid. And the reason my family survived it was because, you know, they, they could get into the forest. The, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about my family who live in the village. They could get into the forest and they could hide in the forest. And that's something that they have been doing for centuries and centuries. And, you know, I don't know if you know about the whole history of the secret societies, the Bunde and the Poral. It's called the, the women's one is called Bundu or Sande, depending on which part of the country you come from. And the men's one is called Poral. And that's all about secrecy having little roots and, and methods of getting information across and sharing information. And one of the things I read some while back was that, you know, it was used as a resistance against the colonials. But of course, it's been used as a resistance against... Everything. Know, everything. 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 Or, you know, the fact that the crossroads is, you know, considered to be a great a place of great danger. And that's because that's where you could bump into slavers and people who meant ill, who intended to capture you. So you, you, when you moved at night, you moved through the forest. So these are people who have been protecting themselves forever and have overcome and overcome and overcome. And when I go to Sierra Leone, and I sometimes I get a little depressed because I hear people repeating the narrative that's been given to them by NGOs, you know, about, oh, they go, Sierra Leone, mana, you know, lazy, and, uh, you know, we don't try, and we don't this, and we don't that. And I just think, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, we have resisted so much and survived so much and we need a new narrative we need to tell ourselves instead of telling ourselves you know that we are the worst at everything we really need to start looking at how we've survived in you know in, in the face of so much you know that would have defeated us i think you say it beautifully and you touched on i guess my next line of conversation or that i would love to have with you which is, you know, you mentioned activism, but also everyone says as a black female, we are a double minority. And in the literary world, there's also, you know, this, you know, black writer, African writer, and then being a black female writer and, and achieving success as you have and being able to own your voice in, in mainstream as you have done. And still finding a way to pursue or lend your voice to the causes that you care about. How have you been able to push through that and emerge, as it were? Because I think oftentimes, as a Black female who is in, I guess, what I would call the global marketplace, there's never a, a you know, hello, welcome, ma'am, you know, through the store. Oh, yes, you know? come this way. Let's open the door for you. Right here, you know, <laughs> this way. Are you looking for the entrance over yes, here? Yes, have this seat. <laughs> there isn't that. And navigating even just the journey of deciding a profession in writing, you know, finding a publicist, an agent that really believes in you, knowing what is ahead, that really wants to champion your voice, your stories. Again, how seems really simple, but I, I don't know if I'm articulating it well enough, but I think you, you well, get I'll the vein. I think, of... Yes, you are, and I can tell you. I mean, I can, I'll talk a bit about writing afterwards, but I'll tell you the first thing is, you know, when you're a double minority, or let's put a triple minority, because I'm also a mixed race, 
So when you you know when you are so many minorities, frankly, I just just you know I so I, I could exhaust myself with this. Right. And I think that's probably where I got to with identity. So I could exhaust myself with this, you know. I you know, I spent my time growing up being asked, Well, which one are you? Which one are you? And I just thought this is the question itself makes no sense. And you know, I am um, recently I was reading a book about myself. <laughs> I know it's an unusual experience, but an academic had written a book about my work. And I thought, well, can this guy tell me that I don't already know? But I thought it would be interesting. And one of the things he spotted in The Devil That Danced on the Water, when at one point I write about being a tomboy and wanting to be a boy and borrowing my brother's shorts and, you know, passing as a boy for a long time, he observed that at some point I just abandoned all interest in single identities. What I wanted when I was that little girl dressed as a boy was, I didn't want to be a boy. I didn't even know what that meant. What I wanted was the opportunities that boys had, right? I wanted the freedom. And that has always stayed with me. And I was raised by two, I mean, several, but when I think of my African parents, my father and my stepmother, they never told me it was going to be easy. What they said to me always, always, always was, you are going to be extremely successful at whatever you do. My father wanted me to be a lawyer. No, not a lawyer, attorney general. But they always said I was going to be a success and they always said it was going to be a heck of a fight, right? They never, ever let me think it was going to be easy. You know, that's where I've always taken it. And after my father died, my stepmother always said to me, it's even, it's harder for you because you don't have a father. You have to fight harder because you don't have a father. So I was basically brought up to fight. And I've offered now, I think, you know, I think about people who weren't brought up to fight. And I was having this conversation recently with some white friends. <laughs> and I say, were you ever told that when you were growing up? And they said, no, never. They were simply told, you know, I mean, the men, basically, it was, you know, here you are, this way, this way, let me open the door for you. And the women, one of the women said, no, she said, I was always just told to be myself. So you see, you know, this is why words and stories are so important. You know, I was brought up to fight for and to know that I had to fight for what I wanted and that nobody was going to open the door for me. But be And because I grew up with so many sort of multifaceted place in the world, I didn't really bother rolling myself into to you know, one narrative. So it, it just wasn't worth wearing any chips. <laughs> I mean, I, it just wasn't worth it. It would have been weighed down. You know, I, I, I think it's all been a blessing, really. And I think because I confound. Uh, so some people say, you know, are you, I used to be asked, are you confused? And you know, later I learned to answer the question, no, but I know that I am confusing. And so now you asked me about how do you do this as a writer? You have to find people who think the same way you think. They may not be people who look the same as you, okay? You know, so my agent is a tall white man in now in his late 60s, maybe he's even 70 now, a bit tweedy. <laughs> you know, he's been my agent forever, but he thinks the way I think. You know, he doesn't box people in. He doesn't expect one thing from his writers. He represents a lot of writers from the subcontinent and from the African countries, I'd say the majority. You know, he saw in us what the publishing world didn't see. 
you know, when the publishing world was still very white, he was out basically uh, uh, signing up writers like me who were going to write across worlds and has been very successful in it. You know, I have a publisher in America who's exactly the same. You know, I have an editor that I've just done my last book with who is exactly the same. And actually, I specifically asked that he edit it because he commissioned several of the essays in it in his time in different roles at different journals. And he had commissioned variously a story about the only working vet in Sierra Leone and his love of street dogs. I, too, am extremely passionate about dogs and stray dogs as well. You know, a story about Sierra Leone, about Iran, about 1979 in Iran. Now, I can tell you that if I had gone, when I was at the BBC, if I had gone and said, I want to make a film about Iran in 1979, most of the commissioners there would have said, well, what's it got to do with you? What's Iran got to do with you? So you've got to find people who think outside the box. And as I say, they may not look like you. They might look like you, but they may not look like you. But they have to have that kind of inquiring mind. And that's how I've managed to do it. You know, find those people, build yourself a team and um, work hard. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's well said. Again, sounds very simple. But in reality, having your work, you know... A simple Google, your work's everywhere. You've had your essays, you know, appear in everything from Vogue to The Guardian, which speaks to, I guess, how accessible your work is and, and you make it so. Is that conscious, though, that you want it to amplify beyond, I guess, the literary scene and to the average person? Well, I never wanted to be an academic. You know, I never wanted to tell stories or, well, I mean, academics don't really tell stories, but you know what I mean? I never wanted my thoughts to be shared by the minority. I wanted my thoughts to be shared by the majority because I did think I had something different to say. I, you know, and that's what each of the people I've talked about, you know, when I say get a good tea, forgive me, that each of the people I've talked about have said, you know, you have a perspective that most people don't have and you doubtless have it too, says it, you know. And actually lots of people do have that perspective. We just don't have a megaphone. <laughs> the way that other people have. You know, it's, it's sort of been, you know, the, the book of essays just came out last week and the reaction in America has been extraordinary for a book of essays. Claire Mesoud in Harper said some of them should be compulsory reading. And yet I'm writing about things that not only have people like us been going through four generations, but a whole generation is going through. You know, it really shouldn't be that much of a mystery, but because the narrative, particularly in America, has been so overtaken and reduced to one dimension. So I've always argued for a more nuance, a more nuance in discussion, and that's what's becoming harder and harder to get. And I will say this, actually, Zezé, for the readers. I said a story, I, you know, I wrote a, a short memoir about my time in Iran when I was growing up. I also set a book in Croatia, and I've mentioned that during this conversation. You know, I was asked by a group of students, Africans, well, students of African history, culture and literature about that book. And I said, it would, I don't think it would get commissioned now. I think the great tragedy that we are seeing in the literary arts, oh, and actually in the arts in general, is this idea of appropriation, which has come to mean that you can't write about anything outside your own direct experience. And I think it is in danger of killing off so much imagination and creativity. And I've said to people, you know, imagine any one of my novels 
in which every single character is a middle-aged, mixed-race woman of Serogunian and Scottish heritage. Every single character has to be that because I'm not allowed to write about anything that isn't my experience. And I say, if you want to read that, if you think that's what novels should be, then you shouldn't be reading novels, you should be reading memoirs. You should read non-fiction. But a novel is a work of imagination and the writer has to be free to imagine that. And I have to be free to imagine what it's like to be a man in Croatia called up to fight in a civil conflict. And I have toured Croatia with that book and I have been to Sarajevo with that book. And if I tell you the Bosnians and the Croatians don't have a problem with a Serdinian woman writing about them because they want to hear what somebody else who thinks about their conflict, right? What, who has the right to say that we can't do that? This is the question, right? But I'm afraid it began in the, in the United States and it has overtaken this idea that you can't write outside your own experience. I have even been asked by a young black African-American student whether I appropriated the stories that appear in Ancestor Stones, which, is, you know, which I researched heavily among Timney Sierra Leonean women so, you know, too many Sierra Leonean women who are my mothers, aunts, you know, cousins, distant relatives. The idea that even stepping that far outside my own direct experience was an act of appropriation. And, you know, I just thought, this is over. You know, this is over. You may as well just put the books down and give up. And it, it, it's having a stultifying effect on writers. It really is a lot of writers. I saw, I had lunch with my publisher in New York. You know, I said, how is it playing out in the books that you're getting? And he said, well, the white writers have just given up ever including a character of colour. And, you know, for the black writers, yeah, stick to writing about Africa. Don't write about anything else or stick to writing about, you know, African-America, but don't write about anything else. So, yeah, that was a real own goal. Yeah. And, and I guess that box is the issue. Yeah. I've spent decades trying to get out of it. And now people who look like me are trying to push me back into it. But then when we're seeing in other media like you know, Bridgerton with Shona and she's written Grey's Anatomy and she's written popular cultural shows. And, and I find this in my, in I guess, the cosmetics industry as well, the space. And, and, and there's a new wave of Black entrepreneurs coming into the space and it almost feels like they're only allowed to create products for people of colour. Why can't we, or, or I guess the question is societally, why is there this, but you can only create for your own, you can't create for all of us type of thing? Well, I mean, you have to tell me, you know. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Bridgerton and actually, while we're here, I'll mention that Andrew Ando uh, narrates several of my books. But uh, he's one of the main characters in Britain, Lady. Now, the sort of interesting thing about Bridgerton, because I asked a class this when they were... Uh, oh, by the way, you, you didn't want to be a scholar in academia, but you are the director. No, I t I'm a creative in academia. That's a bit different. <laughs> you are the director at Georgetown University. I'm a professor University. of the practice. <laughs> at <not>. Georgetown University. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I, I did. I did. I wanted to say it then, but I thought you were sort of in flow of, of, of your point. No, so. I mean, actually being inside academia confirms <laughs> that I don't want to be. So, I mean, American academia is kind of interesting because American academia brings in a lot of practitioners. So we actually have dramatists working in the drama department, in the drama department, and filmmakers working in the film department, and you know doctors. And so, 
I, I consider myself not an academic, but a creative practitioner within academia. But my exposure to academia was, was uh, somewhat behind that remark. I didn't want to be an academic. I thought that was funny. One of my students said to me after a creative writing class, he came up to me and he said, he said, oh, thank you, Professor. He said, this is the first time at Georgetown that anyone has actually taught me to do something. Now, I lost my train of thought, of course, because we went off on that. But what were we, we talking, we were talking about? about Bridgerton. We were talking about oh, yeah. Bridgerton. So I, I asked the class, why, you know, why won't you let writers do what apparently, you know, why does your generation accept something from filmmakers that you won't accept from writers? You know, so, so for example, things like audiences seem to have no trouble with the idea of a dramatization in film. But somebody writes a novel based on a true story and it gets picked apart for authenticity well what bits did you make up well you know and it get and, and then it has different different names get attached to it the most recent one is called autofiction <laughs> but there's a sort of obsession with what is the writer and what isn't the writer but we can watch a dramatization on tv and understand we watch the crown and there may be some arguments about which bits of it are real and and maybe some people take more of it literally than other people. I mean, I think there's a great, but I, you know, I think to me the crown is a greater danger than in terms of you know what you might call authenticity because those people are alive and because there's absolutely no way of verifying them most of that story except what appeared in the papers. So the liberties taken are absolutely enormous. With Bridgerton, there were a few people who you know whined and bitched about people of colour being in it, but by and large, you know, the audiences loved it. So. It seems to be possible in film, and one of the answers, you know, the answer that I have identified as as the probable cause of this is because writing and reading is a one-on-one experience, and it has this sort of element of subjectivity to it, and because people are looking for a certain kind of answer in a literary work that they're not looking for from a work of popular culture, right, a film or a TV series. And so that's why they get upset and offended when things are misrepresented. And, and I will add this, you know, I get as angry as anybody else does at misrepresentations, okay? I get furious. I read a book by somebody I knew personally and I admired up until I read that book. (laughs) And, you know, a third of the way through, the only two women of colour, the only two characters of colour were women and they were prostitutes. And I thought, okay, I'm going to give you another hundred pages. Figure this out. (laughs) Because, you know, (laughs) these women don't transcend. It gets gets better from there. Yeah, these women don't transcend this. And when I saw that they were not going to, I just thought, you know what, you can do better. I am not reading your book. And that is what you do. You put the book down. You put the book down. And increasingly, you know, people are... I mean, I know writers are working. Writers from the mainstream are working harder to get these things right and be challenged to think in the round. And that's what we should be doing. We should be challenging people to do, you know, what we've talked about all the way through this discussion, prismic thinking, you know, instead of saying, no, 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 you know, here's your little eye, you know, here's your microscope and you can only look at that. We should be encouraging people into prismic thinking. I guess around that topic, I I, I also feel as though, and speaking to, I guess, the narrative, there's also this thing around us owning our stories. So if there isn't some sort of tragedy, we're also not allowed the wonderlust narrative. 
that narrative has to come from someone other than us, which I worry about because when it comes from us, it's a celebration. And I think that celebration almost feels like an affront to the less knowledgeable out there. And I wonder if that's the same or if you've experienced the same in your career so far. You're going to have to give me an example of the idea that it becomes a celebration. So, for instance, I think Out of Africa, you know, you know the movie? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like... The book. Uh, <laughs> you know, Isaac Dennison. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that that is just the, that is the lens, right? The lens is everything is out of Africa or it's, you know, King Kong, and I think only in the last sort of two decades where we start to see Lion King and Hotel Rwanda and things like that, but where we're in mainstream culture, I'm speaking about. And I, I just wonder how many of our stories, your, for instance, your stories, will translate into popular culture. Oh, I don't know. Because they should, I mean, right? I wish I could write for popular culture, but I'm not sure I'm entirely capable of it. But I think it, it can be. Like, you know what I mean? Like the experience and the emotions are, are relatable no matter where in the world that you are in. I think the mood of the stories could translate into popular culture. I'm not, I mean, I don't know if any of, any of my books specifically would be, ever be made into movies. You know, I mean, actually, I've been optioned a couple of times, but uh, at the moment, the gatekeepers keep a very, very close guard on, you know, who isn't isn't allowed in. So... The book I set in Croatia was optioned and they touted it round. A Hollywood agent looked at it and said, I can't think of anywhere to set this book but Croatia and I can't sell a, a, a movie set in Croatia. And then with Memory of Love, it's like, well, they did Blood Diamonds and said that that was the Sierra Leonean war story. I mean, I don't mind the memory of love not being made into a movie. You know, I'm so sort of over that book and <laughs> don't need to go back there. You know, I think we've all moved on. But it's sort of not within my control. But I think that in other elements of popular culture where we see the two, the two sort of areas of big change are, first of all, the locus of production changing so that Nigeria and South Africa are now big filmmaking centres as is India, for example. And then the other big shift we're going to see is the change to narration that Netflix and Amazon are going to engender because they have to be made now for multiple markets. And that's one of the things that a friend of mine who's a film director has been talking to me about is, you know, you're looking at stories that have to transcend the white hero. <laughs> You've got to go beyond that. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I've really spotted on Netflix some really interesting series coming out of West African and South, Southern African filmmaking industries. So I think that's where the, that's where we're going to get a big change. I mean, it's been there in novels, you know, for a long time. I mean, I, I would say that revolution started years ago, but, you know, novels just have a kind of more limited audience than movies do. I think at the moment, you know, I mean, I really look forward to some good comedies coming <laughs> at the moment. There is an awful lot of melancholy, uh, you know, tragic stories where black women are playing their prescribed role as victims. You know, I really look forward to a good number of comedies. You know, I think that's one of the things I really notice in a woman of colour generally, you know, African, African heritage women of colour, is this remarkable sense of humour. And very early on, I mean, particularly after my first book came out, because it was a, you know, was a book about losing my father. But, you know, even in that book, there is humour. And all my books 
contain a strong element of humour. But I do remember being very, you know, shocked in a way, I suppose I shouldn't have been, but I was a lot younger then, that people expected that when I got up on a stage to speak, people expected this tragic heroine and that I wasn't in any way like that. And I, I can remember that physical surprise being physically manifested on people's faces that I was, you know, a vivacious kind of fast talking, you know, woman who made a lot of jokes and laughed easily. And they were very surprised by this. And I find this over and over again. And I, and I see that. I don't see that so much reflected in the kinds of stories we're getting on the visual media but I hope that that will change. I think that's still kind of playing to a certain a certain expected narrative. But also, the other thing I will say, Zazie, is we do live at a time where victimhood has been elevated to extraordinary levels. That was going to be my... That I, I was going to end on that one, so I'm glad you're taking us there. I'm glad you're taking us there. I mean, it, I don't know what it is, but I will only tell you this. I don't know anyone who is really a victim, in inverted commas, who wants to be seen that way. That's all I can tell you. The minute someone starts calling themselves a victim, they probably aren't. And, and I think there's this narrative of, well, let's leverage this opportunity, which unfortunately I don't agree with because I just want to be called whenever the conversation is being had. I don't want to be called as a diversity measure or included measure. I want to be as good as seen as an, a competitor in the space because by merit, it doesn't feel good to be a token inclusion. Well, I mean, I wouldn't sort of worry about that. It doesn't feel good, but you probably are as good as anybody. I mean, you know, it's, there are lots of mediocre white men who are there just because they're white men. So, I mean, I wouldn't spend any time grieving over that. But I will say this, which is you know, what Toni Morrison says. It takes up a lot of time when we should be doing other things. Somebody asked me recently, my, my, a lot of the essays are about ecology in my new book. And a friend of mine who is a white man said to me, I didn't know you were interested in, in ecology. And I found myself saying to him in quite a stern way, I said, well, actually, if you'd asked me what I wanted to be when I was 10 years old, I wanted to be a vet, right? I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. But what happened? My father was murdered by a tyrannical regime. My country went to war and I was born a black woman. And I said, I've spent my whole life having to deal with those narratives, right? Correct them, put them out there, you know, whether it was, you know, uncovering the truth behind what happened to my father or, you know, writing about the war in, in Sierra Leone or, or even coming to his own country, and finding myself being asked over and over again about what's happening in America, because I have a, a, a certain perspective, you know, whilst he's looking at birds and bees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hashtag, hashtag black women's lives matter. Yeah. You know, and I thought, you know, you, you've had the luxury of looking at birds and bees all this time. I haven't had that luxury. We've already got enough on our plate without painting ourselves even further into a corner. You know, without taking on the mantle of victim and going around being that, performing that for other people. No, thank you. No, thank you. It's not our job. Yeah, it's not my job. It's not my role. It's not who I am. And also, I'm quite cheerful. Uh, Aminata, this has been incredible. Um, where can people find you? At www.aminatafuna.com. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> 
I'm also out here in America. <laughs> yes, if if they want, they could they could on take... the East Coast uh, teaching at Georgetown University. Yeah, they, they could take up one of your one of your courses at yeah, Georgetown. Exactly. You can register. I mean, you can uh, yeah, you can uh, you can become a student at Georgetown. But no, I, I mean, I'm the, my books are all over the place. My new book of essays is out. It's called The Window Seat. There's an audio narrated by me. Uh, not Angela Ando this time, but narrated by me. And it hasn't come out in the UK yet, but it is out in the States and it will be out in other countries. And, you know, it's an inter- international world. You can order from anywhere you like. So, Thank you so much um, for joining us in this week's episode. It's been an honour to have you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started.